the ability to log on is, is it's itself a form of power and the ability to prevent someone from logging on right. is, a, is a way of asserting that power as well. Welcome to the January 10th edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. This week, we have a very special guest, An Shao Mina. That name should be very familiar to hyperallergic readers, because An was probably one of the first contributors to hyperallergic ever. An, do you want to say hello? Hi. You've gone from being an artist, blogging, to now becoming like a public intellectual on internet culture and memes and social movements and politics. So how did you do it? It was all you, Frog. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to take credit, but I don't think it was. Well, but seriously, I think it was when I first started, you know, writing for Hyperallergic and exploring these ideas around social media art and the kind of the role, the potential role of the networks and creativity, that um, it was before I was starting to use the word meme, but, um, you know, so I was looking through some of that early writing, and it very much was about, you know, memes, about this idea that creativity could be decentralized, Mm -hmm. that many people could contribute to a work, a work could have multiple different directions. Right. And when I first started writing about memes as memes, um, was also with hyperallergic in terms of the Chinese context. And, That's right. And looking at that in terms of the politics and the context of censorship and how um, how memes were really this kind of powerful force in the context of like a very censored and um, disinformation uh, rife environment. So. We were using another term then, wasn't it? It was like internet street art or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, internet street art. That's right. It's the street art of the internet. The memes, uh, memes were like that, right? And, That's and, right. And again, it was that, that common interest we had in kind of street art culture, both, you know, here in New York and in Los Angeles, around the world. And I was like, wait a minute, when I was looking at this stuff online, I was like, mm, yeah, it does look a lot like street art. It had that kind of irreverence, had right. that same kind of um, of kind of this quality of just popping up and, and, uh, uh, and challenging dominant narratives. Yeah. So now people may not know how we first met, which was on Twitter. It was on Twitter. So you were the artist in residence at the first fans at the Brooklyn Museum, which was their sort of VIP members only uh, Twitter feed they were experimenting yes. with. That's right. That's right. And I was a little, you know, I was I was critical of the fact that it was paid and like paywalled essentially yeah, as part that. of a membership. And but then that started a beautiful conversation that's continued till today. It did. And it was unusual at that time to meet over Twitter, right? That right. was kind of a an interesting kind of remarkable thing at that time. I, I now meet so many people through Twitter. It's in fact like where I live myself, you know, professionally. Um, when but, was that? Yeah. 2007, 8? Do you even remember? It would have been 2009. 9? Wow, okay. January okay. 2009. Gotcha. That, was, that gotcha. was when it began. Got it. Because I remember working on the proposal 2008. Right. Um, and then you and I must have started talking right around, right around after right. it was announced or whenever it went public. Yeah, and I, I was so impressed with the way you sort of handled the criticism and just like sort of just been like, okay, well, let's talk about it. And, you know, and I think that that tone comes through in the book too. This kind of like, let's just put it on the table and let's talk about the issues. Yeah, and I think that's what's necessary, right? I think um, the the internet, you know, just genuinely is a is a discursive environment. It's where right. we have conversations. 
And thinking about art, right? I had never thought about art as like this thing that I myself do, but rather it's provoking a conversation. Right. And so, so, so now you have a book out called yes. Memes to Movements, How the World's Most Viral Media is Changing Social Protest and Power, out from Beacon Press. So tell me about that. I mean, that's a pretty provocative title. Yeah, it's um, it it really started with this idea that internet memes right, right. are part of movements today, and it was counterintuitive certainly when I started thinking about it. Um, and since then, we've we've seen memes as part of pretty much all movements and, right. and embraced by politicians, hate groups, propagandists. But when I was first starting to think about it, it was this like interesting idea: like, could memes really be a part of our our social movements, and right. do they really have power? And so I thought it would be interesting to kind of sit down and explore that. Um, the The title I want to say is actually um, actually came out of this a conversation I was leading at Personal Democracy Forum mm-hmm. um, in New York, and and we titled the panel "Memes to Movements." And it just kind of stuck. So it's yeah, like, and the alliteration it's and it's uh, yeah, and it kind of sticks in people's minds. So now, when it comes to you know the memes to movements and the stuff you've been working on, one thing I keep thinking about a lot is how we got here. I bet you get that question a lot. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it was such a hopeful place, the internet. It was. It, it was. was. And, you know, and I don't want to say there's no hope because clearly so many of us work on the internet and there's yeah. such great things coming out yeah. of it. But there's no hope in the same way. No, it's different now. Yeah, why? Yeah. I think it's nuanced now. I think there was this kind of um, blind optimism about the internet. And when we first started getting online, we saw all this potential. But part of that, I think, was the internet was new. The people on it was, was very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, since uh, you and I met, well, it's been almost uh, 10 years, right? Uh, the population on the internet is now 50% of the world. Um, there's so many different people online, different politics, uh, different players building the internet. Politics inevitably becomes a part of the story um, in right. a way that we didn't really have to deal with back then. That's um, right. So I think the hope is, uh, is, is tempered. But um, like anything, when you when you bring a lot of people together, it gets it starts to get messy and complex. Wow! So now, actually, we did meet ten years ago this month. Is that right? Yeah, January two thousand nine oh is when we God. first started talking. It, and it's two thousand nineteen. That's right. I thought it was two thousand eighteen. Yeah. Wow. So, so there you are. There you so go. it's been exactly it's, ten years. So this gives us a good frame. The other thing about it is, I don't know if I feel safe on the internet the way I used to. No, no, me neither. Yeah. And I think, um, again, it's because there are so many more people online. There's so much more politics and and the techniques of, of harassment, yeah. of, um, of hurting people have gotten more sophisticated and networked as right. well. Just in that same way, that same sort of power of networks uh, is power. And, and power can be, uh, you know, as we all know from Jenny Holzer, yeah. uh, abusive power comes as no surprise. And uh, abusive memes comes as no surprise either. But there's a lot more cases also that things aren't so cut and dry. They're not so black and white in terms of what is abuse anymore and what is it. Because, you know, it's like you almost have to see the whole arc of a conversation. That's absolutely right. Which almost doesn't ever happen to most people, except for the people that are involved in the conversation. That's right. Yes, so much of the internet takes away context. Right. um, And it's only you and, you know, the people involved. So much of the internet takes away, strips away context. Right. Um, And so take a simple thing like a like or a heart, Right. That's intended to be like a, a note of affirmation, right. but if it's coming from an abuser, it can be a reminder, hey, I'm watching you. 
right? Right, right. And so context right. is so um, important to how we understand the role of the internet in society, and yet uh, context is so often removed from what we see day to day. And so you're absolutely right. It's totally gray areas now, and um, we never know to what extent um, a single action can then escalate into, into tremendous violence. Recently, there was an issue with an artist complaining to the Athens Biennial curators about like some internet harassment. And it was amazing that the curators dismissed it saying, oh, it's just internet words. Yeah, that's right. Do you know? So why is that perception persist? Because I mean, I think I, I thought we all realize that the internet is a place. You know, it's not it's not some fantasy land where it doesn't impact our lives. But people still treat it that way. Why? It's a tough question. I think part of it is this kind of ongoing narrative. I mean, we've always called it a virtual space, um, and that's uh, since the beginning, mm -hmm. um, a place that wasn't the real world. Right. Um, and that, that, that narrative continues to this day, even though we have numerous demonstrable cases that what happens online is, is very right. much offline as well. And I find myself slipping into it. I, I'll often say, oh, yeah, in the real world, this, and in the virtual world, this. It sticks. It's just how we think about these things. Yeah, and how do you differentiate? I mean, I also think it's partly because people don't want to take responsibility for it. There's also this. There's also this. Uh, it's like it's overwhelming. Is uh, What do you do? Uh, what do you do when uh, someone is being harassed online? You mm -hmm. know, there's, we don't have the norms yet. Even um, experts in harassment are still kind of figuring out what is the appropriate mode of response. People looking at human rights issues are still determining what are the ranges, what is the matrix of, of concerns, and how do you respond to these challenges? Right. And so even if experts are struggling, um, you know, the average layperson, what can they do? What, do they even know what to do? It's, it can be overwhelming at times. Right. No, I, I bet. Now, you've had a front seat to a lot of these issues because I think, you know, you were an artist or still an artist, actually. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say past tense because it's certainly a present tense. I actually curated you mm -hmm. into uh, an exhibition, The Social Graph, that took place in 2010, I believe, or 11. I can't I can't even keep track. Anyways, but I think it's, it's 2010. <laughs> it's been a while. And, uh, you know, and at that, you sort of, you know, you worked with a lot of things. You went to China. You work mm -hmm. there. Yep. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so in China, that's, you know, again, that's where the, this is kind of frame of the internet as uh, memes is the street art of the internet uh, really kind of stuck in mm -hmm. my head because there I was um, at Ai Weiwei's studio. Right. right? And um, Talk about uh, front row seat in yeah. the way the internet was sort of being transformed. That's right. And it was uh, 2011. Mm -hmm. um, that was the, the year he was disappeared. Right. Um, and also then gave me a window into the, the censorship regime. Um, mm -hmm. how messages about him were silenced and removed. Right. And also what's called the 50 Cent Party, which yes. is the uh, kind of paid propagandists and commentators who were spreading comments um, on Twitter that were designed to confuse and distract about what was happening. You know, and we saw those comments. I remember talking to you at the time because, you know, you get these kind of comments that seem almost rational, but they're clearly designed to influence a conversation. That's right. That's right. And, you know, it was a very sophisticated way of dealing with the internet, you know. And so do you want to explain who these people are and why they're called that? Yeah. So, yeah, so the, the rumor is that they're paid 50 cents per comment. Um, and so it's very difficult to, to research uh, these communities, right, um, or the, the people who are paid. Yeah. Um, but there was, uh, there was just an article that came out, and uh, we should look it up, but it mm -hmm. was, uh, I think it was the New York Times. It was about the, the people who are paid to be censors. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre kind of experience because they have to be trained in the things that they don't know about um, so that they can censor it. 
um, and they have to know all the keywords. Um, they have to learn all the nicknames, all the memes about. Yeah. Is this it? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So this is uh, Lee Wan's article called "Learning China's Forbidden History So They Can Censor It." Yeah, um, and so it's this strange paradox where people, you know, the people who are paid to censor, often they're young people, have to learn all the memes, um, all the things that are being censored, so that they can um, censor it. And uh, even if they didn't know about it before, the, the paid commentators are yeah. probably going through similar training, just like this, sitting it, in an office. It, it reminds me of back in like about 2007 or so, BBC had reported uh, that when journalists, journalists, I'm using that loosely, unfortunately, to CCTV, which is the Chinese state television channel, when they arrived at their desks, on their screen would appear those topics they couldn't write about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me a lot of that. It's like teaching yeah. you what you cannot. Teaching what you can't write about it. But it's networked now. Right. It's, uh, uh, the government has adapted for networks. You know, there's this famous saying from Bill Clinton that you can't nail jello to the wall when he was talking about the internet in China. Right. Um, but if you have enough nails, uh, you, can, you, can, you can pull it <laughs> off. And, uh, and so what we're seeing is, is kind of a networked form of propaganda and censorship that just requires a mix of artificial intelligence and just hiring lots and lots right. of people. I think it's, I mean, that's a great example because, you know, Apple's earnings this year were short of what people were expecting and they blame China, mm -hmm. you know, because of their inability to sort of like play by China's rules, mm -hmm. you know, and here's an example of like literally the biggest company in the world saying that they are having trouble because of China. Yeah. And that is a reflection of China's uh, growing influence um, in digital culture, in the way we use technology. It's a reflection of the kind of outward-facing vision now um, mm -hmm. that China is bringing to the internet. It is not just China that is censoring the internet, and is China advising other countries, the Chinese mm -hmm. government advising other countries in, in mm -hmm. these techniques. And so what we're seeing, what we're entering now in 2019, again, you know, going back to politics, is the literal geopolitics of the internet yeah. are influencing our daily experience of how we use tech. What did you learn in 2011 being at Ai Weiwei Studio and, and watching all of that unfold? You know, I think uh, one was uh, the kind of the incredible role that art and visual media play in, in resistance efforts, right? Mm. It was, uh, especially back then, it was the keyword censorship. It was um, kind of human-based censors who were um, trying to shut things down. But what I started noticing, not just with Ai Weiwei, but with other kind of sensitive issues in China, um, was the role of visual culture on the internet and remix culture in helping people find ways to talk about the things that uh, were being uh, censored. Right. And even if it had a limited impact, um, you know, it, censorship does work. It is very effective. The act of speaking out is itself a powerful thing. Right. Um, so, so seeing how that worked and seeing how people, you know, really, uh, really found ways to express themselves around these issues was, I think, critical to my, my understanding of memes. Yeah. So I think some people are disheartened, you know, when they see that. But that didn't dishearten you. Yeah, because I also saw the people, right? right. It, you can you can look from afar and you can see, oh gosh, everything's being censored. It's all being silenced. Um, but I knew the people who were making a lot of these images, right? right? And they had a lot of you know hope, and they were, you know, finding ways to um, to speak out, and they saw that it was necessary. And that's another thing that I think is really important about the way we talk about the internet is to remember people's lived experiences, that people's uh, realities, that uh, the, the contrast um, right. to, to all of this is not speaking out at all. And so in, in that sense, it was um, a way forward at least. 
Yeah. And one of the things that you taught me that I think you've written about for Hyperallergic as well, that I thought was really, it really changed my way of thinking of internet censorship in using the China example, is the fact that censorship is not equal across the board in China. That's right. So often, you know, places like Shanghai or Beijing may have much less censorship. Yeah. That's because right. of foreigners and other things, you know, and, and maybe more sophisticated audiences or who knows. But then the further you go into the more quote unquote provincial areas, censorship increases. Yeah, it's much more nuanced than, than I think from the outside, right? And it depends on censorship in many ways is a form of economic access to information. Right. Um, so it's just another form of inequality, really. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's it's broadly applied. I mean, you know, it's not... It's not like uh, in the U.S. where you have, I mean, you have inequality also, right. but you don't have, um, you know, you don't have blanket censorship of everything in, the, right. in a similar way. So I don't want to downplay the role of censorship, um, but at the same time, it is it is a form of inequality that if you do have financial access, uh, you, you can get the information you need and you can express yourself in certain limited ways. Right. So now let's let's go on to your journey a little bit before we get to this book, because I think it's really important that people know this so that they understand, because you have so much expertise, you know, and I and I'm always impressed by that. So like the art world stuff, you know, working in Ai Weiwei studio and in China and understanding the complexities of those systems that come up around culture. And and we should mention at the same time, you know, Chinese artists were kind of emerging on the world stage. So it's yes, not right. like that's it's right. not like that censorship stopped that emergence. It yeah. just changed the nature and the responses. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And and it's also like an important part of the story here is that Activity on China's internet doesn't happen in a vacuum. Right. right. A lot of those memes, um, not just because of my writing, but many other people's writings, had enough charisma. And they were interesting enough that they got written about in Western press. And so that became a vehicle through which um, people outside China would then learn about the issues and then could feel motivated to apply pressure um, in some ways from the outside, either on their own governments or to, to right. go protest at the embassy. And so, um, so it's not just what's happening in China. It's that this is part of a global context. So now... How do you describe the internet in China versus the internet in that, say, the U.S.? Because, you know, they're so different. Yeah, they're very different. You know, it's yeah. almost like they're two different worlds. They are. And you have mentioned elsewhere the fact that you think that's just going to become a growing trend where there are yeah. going to be two internets. Yeah, we, we were kind of entering this world of at least, I, I would say, at least two internets. At least, you know, right. One is this kind of authoritarian vision of the internet. Um, and... Here in the U.S., it's kind of this uh, laissez-faire, uh, kind of Silicon Valley libertarian vision that you know we, we think of as free, but paradoxically, that kind of kind of open internet. I think of it like the open ocean. Right. It's actually incredibly dangerous um, right. if you're if you're not like the the kind of top level feeder, and it's full of all kinds of risks and and dangers. And so what we don't really have is something that's truly democratic and. Uh, you know, I think back to the, the kind of analogy of the internet as the forum, right? Mm -hmm. Think about the forum was, was largely a place for white men to gather, and met most other people were excluded. So the, the earliest, some of the earliest analogies of the internet are... are kind of accurate. Kind of accurate, yeah. yeah. Like, actually, no, we're, we are living in a forum. And if you're not of the class who built the forum, right. uh, you're going to be excluded. So you went on from there to Silicon Valley. I do work in San Francisco, but I don't work for like one of the big tech companies. Right. Um, I work at a company called Medan, mm -hmm. and we build open source tools for, for journalists and translators mm -hmm. and human rights activists. But being in San Francisco, being, you know, working in the Valley, we inevitably do work with, uh, you know, the big companies. My the tech people, bros. The tech bros. So I, I do work, uh, do have friends who work at the big companies. Yeah. And it infuses the culture um, there. So in some ways, it's been this kind of, 
it's been a really interesting view into the the world that makes the internet um, because uh, I had come to the internet after looking at it in the Philippines and Uganda and China and in the you know outside of Silicon Valley mm-hmm. but then seeing seeing kind of the sausage being made not not with the kind right. of in-depth view that actually working in a company brings, but, right. but seeing the culture that is part, again, the lived experience of, of who builds our tech um, has been interesting. Actually, let's go to Uganda, because I actually forgot to yeah. include that part. So after you left China, you went with the UN agency as support. Which agency was that? Uh, so I was um, I was at Art Center College of yes, Design, right. and then um, we were uh, working with uh, UNICEF's Innovation Hub to do some research on tech in Uganda. In Uganda. Do you want to tell people a little bit about that? Because I found what you found really interesting. Well, it was funny because I was uh, ostensibly w- w- was going to northern Uganda, mm-hmm. um, you know, just Again, this is a very short inversion, but went to northern Uganda to go look at these kiosks um, that were, were built by the Innovation Lab to uh, to bring internet access to folks there. And so people could use these computers. They were solar-powered. They had mobile internet. But when I was there, and you know, I, I like telling this story because people would come up to me and make these kung fu poses. And I was like, what's, <laughs> what's going on? I was like, why are you making these kung fu poses at me? Well, yes, I'm Asian, but... <laughs> Wow. But I was like, where really? where did you learn these poses? Because these were like these were poses from like Kung Fu movies, right? These were wow. that I knew. And and as I dug into it, I realized, okay, well they're not watching it on the kiosks because the kiosks have all kinds of controls around media. Yeah. They were watching it on their phones, on their mobile phones. And they were watching Jet Li, uh, dubbed in the local language, um, wow. with with the yeah. local Ugandan music. And there he was on their phones. So I was like, Well, how did you get access to these movies? Because see the bandwidth is not great here. And many people didn't actually have like a mobile uh, a data plan. And it turns out that it was Bluetooth transfers um, throughout much of uh, northern Uganda that allows for popular media um, like music, kung fu movies, all kinds of like media that you don't really expect is uh, you know, being made available in, in, in this context. And so I was really interested in how that happened. And, uh, and it gave me a window again into this, you know, that, that creative media, again, is, is in many ways a motivating factor for why right. we use tech. Right. And then also you found something really curious about the memes in Uganda. Oh, yes. Yeah, the memes in Uganda were, were interesting because as I was, was talking with, with uh, humorous groups like Urban Legend Kampala and then just young people in the city in Kampala, right? And what's been interesting... Which is the capital of the Uganda. capital yep. of Uganda, that's right. What's interesting is as I, you know, travel around the world is that meme culture is really, it really is like this kind of universal thing that young people do. But the specifics of it vary significantly. And I remember I was talking about Chinese memes and I was showing cat memes and and then people started showing me their memes and it was, it was goats, it was chickens, um, it was cows. I was like, what's going on? These are not what I usually think of as funny animal memes. You don't memes. think goats are hilarious? <laughs> I, well, now I do. <laughs> now I think they're the goats, right? Um, but uh, I was like, what's going on? And again, as I started living in Uganda, you know, I was there for three months, I, I just saw goats everywhere. And they're funny. They're hilarious. They they are, right. they are like cats. They have these kind of weird um, facial expressions. They they climb up in trees. You you kind of see them lying around. Um, and they're the animals that people are around much more often. Cats don't have a significant role in domestic life in Uganda in the same way. And it, again, it gave me this window into the kind of cultural specificity that that we bring to the internet. So, what would you say about that? Were memes their way of understanding the world? Then, how would you characterize? I want people to get a little taste of your book. Yeah, memes are a way for people to express, you know, express their their worldviews, express their lives. One of the the analogies I use is that they're like seeds. Seeds are not a beginning. They Mm -hmm. come from something, but they also have the potential to shape the future. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, in Uganda, in China, United States, that memes come from somewhere, they come mm -hmm. from existing values, and then they shape the conversation moving forward. And so it's fun to talk about with cats and goats, because you can get into the kind of like nitty gritty of these kind of cute things. But then that becomes a vehicle to then talk about the more serious political issues that then people bring to the table, because we're both silly and serious people, um, beings, right? We, we can contain all kinds of thoughts in our heads. And so... Yeah memes become a way of expressing all of these things. Your research in Uganda, was there anything that you're still trying to figure out about it? Because, you know, not everything makes sense. No. no. And even online, yeah. that's yeah. just sort of the reality. <laughs> what, what are you that's still right. trying to think through? Yeah. Um, I don't know about specifically just Uganda, yeah. but, but just in general um, is how... How do we find our communities? How do we um, how do we affiliate online, right? Because the internet has given us these new ways of finding people and new ways of connecting and building community. And um, and it's you know we're no longer bound to our geographical region. We can leap forth, but at the same time, you still have marginalization. You know, mm -hmm. I, I doubt many people are consuming outside of Uganda um, Ugandan media, right? Right. So the network is 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 still unequal. But why and how does that happen? I think these are still still ongoing questions, I think. So, so now we're fast-forwarding back to Silicon Valley. Yes. And um, you're working in Tech's Bro, Tech's, Tech Bro Apocalypse. Text Brocalypse? I don't know. <laughs> what are we going to call it? Bro-pocalypse. <laughs> the Bro-pocalypse in Silicon Valley. So now, what scares you about that? Well, I think when you think about the lived experience of the people building the internet and contrast that with where the internet is being used and consumed, the lack of diversity in Silicon Valley, the uh, on, across many spectrums, uh, gender, race, class, the uh, uh, the tremendous reach and power uh, that that brings, and also the the lack of disciplinary diversity. Mm -hmm. I meet very few people who have experience in in politics, um, in the arts, in um, in law. And in kind of the, these uh, you know, fields that have historically had to grapple with extremely complex issues right. that have things to bring to these conversations. I, I do think that's changing, by the way. I, th I think You do think it yeah, is. Yeah, I think over the past two years, I think there, there is more of a engagement with civil society and with people who, who, have, who bring dis different disciplines. Is it because of the election? I what think was the, it? the election changed a lot, yeah. So it was yeah. 2016 election. 2016 U.S. election. It, it took a, um, events in the United States. Um, to to shift the conversation, which is you know that's ethnic usual. cleansing and usual. Myanmar never did it. No, no, it, it has it has to an extent. Right. But the, the real shock moment, I would say, was 2016. So now let's talk a little bit about that. Things like the Rohingya issue yeah. um, in Southeast Asia, because you know. And I think it's been well documented, so I don't even think we're in conjecture territory, where social media literally played a role yeah. in ethnic cleansing. Absolutely. And memes. Yeah. And memes. And, and, you know, and that's scary because, you know what? No one controls memes. No. no you know? Yeah. So was that one of the first documented cases of weaponization of memes? Uh, certainly, it's a very well documented case, but, mm -hmm. but memes, you know, long before... Uh, long before uh, incidents in Myanmar have been weaponized. I mean, it depends on how you define weaponization. Right. But certainly the 50 Cent Party right. uh, you know, was using this uh, yeah. number of online harassment campaigns in the United States. Right. Um, but they were ignored. They were dismissed. It was, again, goes back to where we were saying, it's, oh, it's, just, it's just online. It's just virtual. Just a tweet. Just a tweet. It's just an image. Yeah. And one of the things I talk about in, um, in my book is I, I use the analogy of jujitsu or judo. It's a, it's a martial art, right? Right. That allows a very small opponent um, to throw a larger person and, and find power. But when a large person 
learns jujitsu, they are even stronger. And so when you put state resources, military resources behind the thing that we had dismissed as, as oh, it's just you're just harassing people, it's just the internet. And you put that, and then you, and then you add military and state power. It's incredibly destructive and dangerous and right. and scary. So right. So now, what are the changes you're actually seeing in Silicon Valley? Because you know, I mean, you're documenting these. You've been very involved in everything from like voter fraud issues, which is still being used by certain political parties for, you know, in a very weird, disproportionate way. And then also you've been talking about this whole idea of truth. Your recent article that was published, um, was it in Neiman Labs? Yes, it was in Neiman Lab. Neiman Lab. And I thought it was so fascinating because you actually talked about the fact that there isn't a problem with truth. It's the problem with consensus. That's right. That's right. So what does yeah. that mean? Yeah, yeah. It's that consensus is built through social mechanisms. Right. And so there's this, there's this kind of rhetoric that, that we're seeing the death of truth. I mean, truth is always there. Yeah, the way, right. like the, but it's, uh, it's the mechanisms of how we come to truth and negotiate truth. They're built on social functions, right? And it's a negotiation of, of your network and of power that we come to believe how things are and what, what they are in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of the things that are changing is the companies in the Valley are much more engaged with journalists, um, much more engaged with uh, civil society, human rights organizations. People I know who've long been doing work in, in issues around human rights are mm-hmm. suddenly you know, being asked for their advice, being asked for their input. Uh, it's moving slowly. It's very difficult because many of these companies are built on a business model that, that requires quarter over quarter growth engagement around strong emotions, that the, the whole ad tech ecosystem is incentivized around around strong emotions, and mm-hmm. therefore you're going to see really strong emotions. Uh, but on the other hand, at least this conversation is happening, and in a way that just wasn't happening you know, before two years ago. Right. So now, when it comes to that kind of dynamic of consensus, part of me wonders, I mean... Is it really that bad that we don't have consensus sometimes? Because, you know, the consensus before wasn't that great. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. No. So yeah. so what is it we're seeking then yeah. when we talk about that? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's one of the big questions. Of, of, is that uh, why we haven't yeah. come up with a solution? That's right. Because uh, I don't know if we want that consensus media. I don't I, know if we want the Walter Cronkite era. That was I don't. A, that was a day when, when people have of all kinds of minorities, you know, um, women, mm-hmm. um, people of color, immigrants, trans people, queer people, didn't have any voice. Yep. The dissensus was already there. Right. The disagreement was there, but there was no avenue for expression. And so, um, so I'm not sure we want to go back to that. But the big question now is, how do we live with, uh, with dissensus and disagreement? Knowing that without structures and frameworks mm-hmm. for engagement, it then becomes, uh, the view of the world then becomes a matter of power and access. Yeah. Um, and so what are the new frameworks that we can build? What is what is a really democratic system look like for the internet? So right now, uh, the people with the most voice are the ones with the most money and, and ability to, to just kind of generate attention. That's right. And I mean, I think those issues are really kind of across the board, right? I mean, in the art community, we see the same thing. That's absolutely right. This you is know? a larger societal thing. It's amazing. It's like, you know, for 30 years, we've been deconstructing up the wazoo every single topic, right? right? But I'll still go to an art school or I'll go and speak to a younger artist or or just, you know, encounter someone. And their questions are still so arcane for me. Mm. They're like questions yeah. like, what's the hot thing right now? Mm. And I was like, there is no hot thing. There are many things. <laughs> are many I mean, things. this is, yeah. but you know, it's like, is it a human nature or is it just that training we still haven't gotten to? What is it you think? 
Oh, it's so complex. I mean, we, we live in this capitalist uh, society, right? Celebrity society. And so you know, we're trained to think about what is the hot thing, because the hot thing is what gives people power and money and access. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, can we learn, and is there a way to be comfortable with, with this agreement um, that, that we can have multiple views, right? This is, yeah. this is what democracy should be built on, actually, the push for consensus. Thinking about China, right? The Chinese view of the internet is a harmonious internet. Uh, do we really want that? Be careful what we're asking for um, right. when we're when we're saying that that uh, the internet is being is polarizing us. When when they say harmonious, is that code for like shopping? <laughs> 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 I don't know what that is even code for because it feels like is it just like a another mall? Yeah, it's code for um, a an internet without um, that is censored that is, has harmony and and therefore yeah a lot of shopping um, and not a lot of political tension. And yet, um, so many advances in democracy are built political tension. But we also saw examples like the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong. I'm sorry, maybe I shouldn't use revolution because that was actually part of the contentious Correct. term, yeah, you right. know, the Umbrella Movement, that's let's right. say, in Hong Kong. So we got a little bit of a taste of, even in a censored internet, how that can function. Though, of course, Hong Kong's a special case, oh, special but everything's yeah. going to be a special case in this new world. That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what do we learn from yeah. that? Or what did you learn? Because you write about this in yeah, your book. Yeah, I do. Well, unfortunately, is that... Over time, uh, the government figured out a way to dismantle and uh, disarm the movement. And so, yes, you had this kind of very free media environment. Um, Hong Kong operates outside of the strictures of the mainland. And so people were able to, to gather in public space. They were able to express themselves online. But uh, within mainland China, Instagram was blocked because so many umbrella movement images were circulating on Instagram. There are new laws now that uh, restrict different kinds of public assembly. All of the art collections from the art uh, that was created there, none of it has found a home in Hong Kong. It all has to be hosted somewhere else uh, because there a lot of pressure was placed on any arts institutions that might have collected that, that art. And there's uh, you know, stories of universities being pressured to, to not really engage around these issues around um, Hong Kong uh, democracy. And so it's actually a window into what censorship looks like is that we think of it as this kind of heavy-handed kind of we're going to delete everything kind of methods. But when you think about soft censorship, the fact that speech and expression are enabled by certain conditions, if you tackle those conditions, it can look like everything's fine. But all the organizers of the movement have been targeted in different ways. And, and so I was just chatting with uh, um, someone in Hong Kong and he was just telling me it's just gotten more and more depressing, unfortunately. How do you survive the internet? It's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, part of it is is also recognizing that uh, that sometimes you have to log off. Sometimes uh, you can't spend too much time on the internet. Uh, so much, so many of these uh, these tools are designed to grab our attention uh, mm -hmm. with with methods that are kind of borrowed from uh, from how uh, how gambling works to kind of pull you in. Also, building community is really important. Knowing, um, you know, who who are my people? Like, right. where where are my communities, right. and how do I spend time with them? And in what environments do I spend time with them? And also, that's part of the work I'm doing. Right, is is helping shape the internet. Um, what does the new internet look like? Building tools um, and working on standards around the internet is incredibly empowering. It's again a reminder that these are not that the internet is not built by accident or just or it is actually as people literally sitting around a room making decisions. And so. Having some seat at that table, it's a very small table, it's not a very influential table, but it's a seat, is a way of engaging. And I hope there are other ways that we can 
build these structures for the future. What do you think the art community can do differently? Or what is it doing? Because, you know, I, part of me, as hopeful as I was, like we mentioned 10 years ago, <laughs> you know, now I feel like there's a fetishization of the internet mm. uh, in, in the art world that isn't good. Okay. Do you know? Well, I mean, it's more complicated than this, obviously, but I'm reducing it. But then there's also an aspect of the art world that is obsessed with the trolling aspect Mm. of the Mm. internet, which is the most repulsive (laughs) aspect, frankly, in my opinion. But I think rich, rich people who really know nothing about the internet find it infinitely fascinating. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a bit of a cruelty porn in that yeah yeah i call them charismatic mega trolls they get all the attention right is that what you call them yeah yeah, yeah they're, right. they're like the you know like they're the, they're the elephants and the rhinos that right they get all the attention where when and you don't pay attention to the larger ecosystem of what actually makes the internet tick right right so now what do you think the art world or art people should know or think about i mean what is their role because you know sometimes i feel like we're just picking on the internet rather mm, than actually mm. working to form it yeah that's right well, art obviously has this historic role in critiquing mm-hmm. society, right, and critiquing politics and public spaces. And I think that's vital. And I think bringing more nuance, like you're saying, to how we critique the internet, I think is really, really important. And not just this kind of charismatic um, kind of stories, but also the, the real ecosystems of it. Art is most powerful when it makes visible what has been invisible to people. And that so right. much of the internet is, is built on invisible structures. Um, right. And uh, it's incredibly difficult to understand. Like, how does ad tech operate? How does the attention economy work? How are design decisions made? These are these are all things that art can bring out and foster a conversation around because largely people don't really understand how um, the internet and technology are built. Right. But then to, to the other part of your question is then what we're missing, what we're lacking right now, again, getting back to this this kind of tripartite world of the internet. We have the kind of Chinese authoritarian vision. You have the the kind of U.S. kind of laissez-faire libertarian vision, and then you have the um, uh, the kind of EU kind of privacy market-based model. We don't have a vision of a, of the internet anymore in a way that that recognizes the complexity of society mm-hmm. um, that uh, moves past these kind of facile um, analogies of the forum or the the superhighway, right? right. What can artists bring to that conversation? I think, um, how can we inspire people to engage with a new vision of what the internet can really look like that takes into account values around equity, around diversity, around democracy? Right. We're missing that. And I think artists are uniquely equipped uh, to bridge that conversation. Thanks for listening to this edition of Hyperallergics Art Movement's podcast. The music for this week's episode is Grass Mud Horse Cartoon and Rap. So that was something you picked on because you thought it might be a nice sort of representation of what we've been talking about, really? Yeah, it's a, well, I mean, it's a meme. Um, it builds on a meme. It, it's kind of shocking to look at it, but it's been, I think, nine years since yeah. it came out. So grass mud horse. Now let's give people a little bit of background. So what's the term in Chinese? Yeah, it's so grass mud horse. It's sao ni ma um, in Chinese. And Chinese is a tonal language. Right. Um, so when you change the tone, you change the meaning. Um, and so sao ni ma sounds a lot like sao ni ma, which means <laughs> fuck your mother. Right. Which is a very common uh, curse word in Mandarin. And so anyone who hears this, who speaks Mandarin, automatically knows what it's a reference to. And, uh, but 
but very specifically, it's about fucking internet censorship. And so it's this kind of code image and word that was at the time designed to evade internet censorship. And through this kind of image of the Alpaca Lama, it became a coded symbol for, right. for resistance to the kind of growing censorship mechanisms in China. So, I mean, this image is more specific than that because I think it's river crabs have been eating the grasslands yeah. that the mud horses right. live on. So that's really the symbol of internet censorship. The, yeah, that's right. So the, the, the crabs. The crabs, that's right. Because right. It, it came from the Hu Jintao policy of right. harmony, the harmonious socialist society that extended into to the internet as the kind of censored harmonious internet right and uh, and the word for harmony in Chinese sounds similar enough to um, the word for river crab and so the word for river crab became the symbol of, of, of censorship and right which is something Ai Weiwei has played with in his work as well absolutely yeah, yeah absolutely. particularly with the demolition of his Shanghai studio that's right that's right so now what happened to this image of the grass mud horse because you know because now it's not what it was well what's what's interesting and, and also sad is that it's an instructive story about the co adaptation of meme culture and how um, over time things yeah, fall apart. And so it was once this great symbol of resistance, but I was, I was really shocked a few years ago to go on to Sina Weibo, um, which is the kind of Twitter-like service in China, mm -hmm. and see that one of the kind of selectable image sets that, that kind of look like emoji was the Tsanima. I was like, what is this? It's officially... This was once the thing that people used to resist and that was once censored, but here it is, it's an official um, uh, character that you could, right. you could place into your into your posts. So they um, defanged it. Defanged. That's you know, it's, right. it's amazing. It reminds me of Noam Chomsky's manufacturing descent. Yeah. This sort of the, you know, when he talks about, um, you know, the fact that, you know, CIA reports will cite him, hmm. you know, yeah. in their bibliographies. It's almost a way to defang the critique, like saying, oh, it's not a big deal. This is just one of many opinions. One of many things. And in the end, it is just a puerile pun, right? It is, it is just fucking your mother. Uh, right. It doesn't have to be a, a direct kind of policy pronouncement. On the other hand, uh, memes never stay still. Um, we mm -hmm. have now the Me Too, which is the rice bunny, um, which is named after the Me Too movement um, in the United States. And so it became the symbol. The, the, to be clear, the feminist movement, women's rights movement in China, long preceded the Me Too movement in the United right. States, just as the current Me Too movement was preceded by you know, a much longer women's rights movement. But it took on this new form through this mimetic image, and that was a pun as well. Right. So, so new memes pop up. It's not to say that it's totally um, co-opted, but um, but for this particular one, the grass mud horse, it's been defanged. And so how did that quite happen? I mean, I guess, you know, because this became a protest thing. How does it end up then on the emoji set or the sticker set yeah. you know do you think mm. how how conscious was that do you think and how how much was a concerted effort to defang this yeah. political thing it's hard to know exactly right you, you never really know what the decisions are but Anne Hinokowitz um, editor at China Channel Daily Review of Books has you know, pointed out that everything that's punk rock eventually you know dies right becomes right. normal and so when you think about how old this meme is you know, one, it's it's old. So over right. time, it just gets old, right? It, it loses right. its 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 kind of edginess um, as more people use it. But then, secondly, is it's reflective of the the Chinese government's you know dominant strategy, which uh, you know I think most people think of censorship as the main mode in which the the government shapes discourse. But they've actually invested significantly in people posting pro-government messages onto social media, and so it's not just about censoring things, but right. also about shaping discourse in a more active way. So it's part of that larger uh, media strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think we're becoming familiar with that, sadly. So here, right. even here in the United States. Thank you so much. Thank you. Huh?
I'm Harag Vartanyan, Editor-in-Chief and Co-Founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and have a great week. Hey, 来了